So a couple of thousand years ago, in a little Roman city called Philippi, a couple of guys had had a bad day. They had been beaten and they had been imprisoned and they were sitting in a dark Philippian jail at night in pain, bound, not knowing what tomorrow would bring. And Acts chapter 16 tells us that they were praying and singing hymns and the hymns that they were singing, they were singing them to God. I don't think the band showed up that night either. The important thing is our hearts and to whom are we addressing our worship and our singing and our prayers. Because even in that unusual circumstance that they found themselves in with all the uncertainty and the pain and the unexpectedness of their situation god heard their prayers and god heard their hymns and god responded and the text tells us that not only did god hear the hymns but the other prisoners heard them also. And the outcome of that night was that God sent an earthquake. Um, their bonds were broken. They were set free. And the result of the events was that the jailer, the one who was responsible for keeping them bound up, came to saving faith along with his family and was baptized that evening. So, Scripture, well, this is not my sermon today. Scripture nonetheless points us uh, to those days when nothing seems to be lining up. The weather isn't what you want it to be. And, and I was warned this morning we may have technical problems and, and things are not what we anticipated. God, as Brandon mentioned in his prayer, is sovereign and these are the times probably we should get most excited because the sovereign God has an amazing way of working in the most unexpected of moments and situations and circumstances in glorious ways. So if you would be so kind as to, as to join me in a moment of prayer and pray along with me either by saying amen to something I might say that you agree with or addressing to the Lord something that he is provoking in your heart. But let's have a moment here where you're not listening to me pray, but rather as a church, as a body, we're unified together before the Lord corporately in prayer supporting one another and seeking his will to be done here today for the glory of God. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the circumstances of this day, the circumstances that 
would perhaps not have been of our choosing. And yet, you delight to show yourself strong and powerful uh, against the things that our eyes perceive, uh, but perhaps our souls don't understand. And so work today in our hearts, in our minds. Use this precious story that's embedded at the end of chapter 7 here in the book of Luke to provoke us, um, to cause us to pause for a moment and consider the truth that is embedded in the text today. Father, allow your word to be a mirror to each of us and give us the courage to stand in front of that mirror and examine ourselves in light of your word. And where we find issues, Father, encourage us, strengthen us, help us to change. Our joy will be most complete when our lives look more, most like Jesus. So, Father, help us. Each of us here today has a very, very long way to go. Yet you're gracious, you're patient, you're kind, you're gentle, you're faithful to us. You never abandon us. You give us constant help to walk this life faithfully and in obedience. So may our chief helper, your Holy Spirit, be at work in our hearts and minds today to bring to light, to illuminate your word to us. May the same spirit that moved in the heart of Luke to faithfully and accurately record your words be at work in us today to comprehend, to understand, to be changed by and to apply your word to our lives. We ask these things not selfishly, not because it will benefit us in some way, and it certainly will benefit us when we walk in the light of truth. But we ask these things because we belong to your son who gave himself for us. Your son who exchanged the death that was ours for the life that we have in him. Your son, who even now, as we meet this morning, is preparing a place for those who trust in him. Your son, who will return one day to gather his bride, his church, to himself, to dwell with him forever. Father, it is because of Jesus that we ask that you would work in our hearts to do what needs to be done to make us fitting people, to make us a church that reflects the glory and majesty of Christ in this lost, dark, dying world. Do in us, Lord, what only you can do. Change us and make us like Jesus. For it's his name that we come to you proclaiming 
And in whose name we come to you asking these things. Amen. Now I'm going to put you on notice that the format that I'll follow today may leave you feeling like you're hanging for a few minutes, maybe more than a few minutes. We will get to the text. I will read the text, and I will preach on the text. But before I do that, I want to do two things. One is I want to spend a few minutes reviewing. This is something that in the preach team we're we remind ourselves and encourage one another to do. And we do that because we all walk around with heads that are bombarded daily, constantly, hourly, maybe minute by minute by information, by input. And guess what? Our heads are leaky. So we fill them up with all of the noise and activity and responsibilities and information of the day. And as we do, things that are important leak out. It's not just an age thing. Um, age doesn't make it any easier, um, but it's not just an age thing. Everybody in this room has laid their keys down somewhere and then later have no idea where those keys are. Um, most of you have walked into a room with some intentionality only to have no idea why you walked into that room. So our heads are leaky things. There are, are things um, sometimes that we hear that we would swear up and down um, we had never forgotten. And then upon hearing them again, we're reminded afresh of things that have slipped out of view for us. So, let's begin with a brief review by hearing from Luke himself. In Luke 1, verses 1 through 4, Luke says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting to me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it all out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So that's how Luke opens up this gospel. And then in his subsequent uh, writings, the book of Acts, uh, in one chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, he says, the first account which I composed, which is the gospel of Luke, Theophilus, all about the things Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering 
by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning what? Can say no? The kingdom of God. Just as a little aside, it's very interesting that the book of Acts concludes in chapter 28 uh, with Luke speaking of Paul, who is in Rome at that time. He's uh, in house arrest in Rome, has a certain amount of freedom, and people are coming and going to Paul, and Paul is busy doing what? The text says Paul is busy speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Just a little interesting, I think, side piece. So Luke's purpose in writing this gospel we're studying was what? Well, he states it pretty clearly. The intent of the gospel of Luke was to write an account about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So this book is about Jesus. This gospel is about Jesus. It is about the things he did, it's about the things he taught. It's derived not from Luke's firsthand eyewitness of the account. Luke may never have laid eyes on Jesus. As Luke, as Luke wrote to Theophilus, he wanted Theophilus to know the exact truth about the things that Theophilus had been taught. And so there's a subtle distinction here that we should probably note. Luke was not a reporter attempting to get the story. He was investigating, validating, perhaps even correcting what his reader, Theophilus, had been taught. He was, in effect, fact-checking the stories that had already been circulating concerning Jesus. I think there's a certain divine brilliance in this. God used Luke to compile a corroborating and validating body of evidence about the truth of Jesus. I think it's not unreasonable to conclude that what Luke learned in this initial endeavor that we see in the Gospel of Luke, the compilation of historical facts in this Gospel likely led him to participate in Paul's post-resurrection work in proclaiming these truths to the world. But that's another story for another time. So let me blow through a brief summary of the chapters that we've looked at thus far, just to nudge your memories. In chapter 1, we read of the birth of John the Baptist. It was foretold. Jesus' birth was foretold. Mary, the mother of Jesus, visits Elizabeth, the mother of John, and both are pregnant. We read of Mary's prayer, sometimes called the Magnificence, um, in response. It's a prophetic uh, prayer uh, in response to her being in, um, in the situation with Elizabeth, where both of them are um, uh, pregnant unexpectedly. 
I might add, pregnant. In chapter 1, John is born, and in chapter 1, Zacharias, give, the father of John, gives his prophecy. In chapter 2, we have Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, and Jesus is presented at the temple as an infant. The family returns to Nazareth, and then they return again to Jerusalem when Jesus is about 12. Chapter 3, we find John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness. In chapter 3, Jesus is baptized in the wilderness, in the Jordan River, by John. And then chapter 3 concludes with the genealogy of Jesus going backwards from Jesus to Adam. Chapter 4, we have the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Then we have the beginning of Jesus' public ministry after his baptism and after the temptation. He returns to Galilee, which is a re region, and specifically he returns to what has been his hometown of Nazareth. He leaves Nazareth, um, and, and, the, and if you recall, there's a very unusual response that happens in Nazareth. But when he leaves Nazareth, he goes to Capernaum, and in, Caper in Capernaum, he begins to uh, heal people. He heals them of spiritual uh, possessions, of infirmities, and diseases. Chapter 5, we see the first disciples of, that Jesus calls, Peter, James, and John. Chapter 5, Jesus heals a leper, and he heals a paralytic. And the story of the paralytic is one that most of us are familiar with, and, and, um, and we heard great sermons um, on those healings. Then there's the call of Levi, whom we think of generally as Matthew, who is a tax collector. Chapter 6, we learn that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. In chapter 6, he finishes choosing the 12. In chapter 6, we have the Beatitudes. Um, we have a question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And he goes on to talk about how we build and he's referring to faith and on what foundation do we build it. Chapter 7, James has led us through Jesus' uh, healing of the centurion's servant, where we see authority uh, put on display. And we see a delegation that is sent from John the Baptist, who is in prison, inquiring as to whether Jesus is the one. And as James took us through last week, um, Jesus' response to that was a demonstration of the fulfillment of the prophecy that we see back in chapter 4 of Luke. Take this evidence back to John. Tell him what you've seen. John will line it up with prophecy and it will give him the evidence that he seeks. So, 
The question that I have for all of us here is, has the preaching of this gospel, gospel provoked you in any way? Has there been anything taught thus far that you haven't heard before? Have you heard anything that changed your understanding about Jesus? Have you heard anything in these sermons that excited you enough to tell someone else about it? Have you heard anything that has made you uncomfortable? Maybe something that has made you angry? Has anything that you've heard in this sermon series confused you? I don't know about you, but I can answer all these questions with yes. So I want to tell you a little story. Many years ago, I met a young man who, in God's providence, would not only become a consistent thread that runs through most of my adult life, but would also become a dear friend, a faithful companion in our mutual desire to follow Jesus. He's a disciplined but humble student of God's word. This fella is a true friend. He's one with whom I find that it's safe and even comforting to admit that day by day I realize that I understand far less than I thought I understood yesterday. That day by day I realize that I need Jesus far more than I ever knew in the past. And that I am far, far less worthy of him than I once believed. I hope all of you have at least one friend like that in this world. So anyway, this friend went to seminary. He had gone to a Christian university, gotten his undergraduate degree, and then decided to go to seminary. And so during those years while he was away, we would have occasion to talk occasionally when he would be home from school. And I asked him a question once. I said, what has surprised you about seminary? Here's what he said. Tom, I grew up in a Christian home. The son of missionaries. Attended church all my life. Went to a Christian college and was confident in my theological wall. I was confident that it was straight. It was well constructed and every brick in my wall of belief was in proper place. But then I went to seminary. There I encountered teaching that challenged my theological wall. I found some bricks should not have been in the wall at all. Others were good bricks, 
that they were in the wrong place. And some parts of the wall were far weaker than I realized, and those parts needed strengthening. In short, I found myself needing to do a lot of unexpected work on my wall of belief. Well, brothers and sisters, what my friend experienced ought to be happening in our lives, I think, until the Lord returns or calls us home. God's word and the challenges of responding to God in obedience, living by faith in this fallen world, loving Christ's church, and loving the lost, groaning alongside all creation, awaiting the return of the Redeemer. All of these things should be prompting us to be at work on our belief walls. Not just intellectually, but in every aspect of our lives as we obey Jesus' call to come and follow me. I pray that the text that we'll get into in a little while will have that effect on us. Today we'll hear a story. Actually, I think I can say that it's a story within a story. Um, the story is about the events of a few hours of one evening in Jesus' life. A few hours of one evening in Jesus' life. Before I finally read the text, and I will get there, let me set the story up a little so that our imaginations can assist us to see the story as we hear it. Not just hear the story. The story. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, I don't know exactly where Jesus was on this evening at, uh, as the story unfolds. Perhaps he's in Nain. That's the city that was mentioned in um, chapter 7 where Jesus raised the only son of a widow from the dead. The text doesn't really tell us where he was. He's almost certainly somewhere in the Galilee region and is probably in one of the numerous little towns or cities uh, in that region. In the story, there's at least one Pharisee. Now, you may recall from previous sermons that Pharisees were seen as the religious authorities at that time. They were generally educated, respected. They were trained experts in the law of Moses. They were occasionally wealthy, and they were almost always self-righteous. In the story today, the Pharisee's name is Simon, and he has an extended an invitation to Jesus to come to his home for dinner. Now, in the story, Jesus is referred to by Simon as teacher. Now, we commonly hear the word rabbi used in this context. To invite a rabbi to your home was not a particularly uncommon or unusual thing to do. To listen to the particular teaching of a rabbi 
or to pose questions to him was entertaining and perhaps even instructive. So when a rabbi was invited as a guest to someone's home for dinner, it was common for people who had not been invited to dinner to nonetheless come and join the dinner to listen to the rabbi speak. Now, they didn't participate in the meal, but they were welcome to listen. So one can imagine that such drop-ins might even please the host as the more people that dropped in validated the importance of the event and of the invited guests. Dinner would have likely been served in a courtyard in this instance. Uh, we tend to take what's familiar to us, right, and transpose it back and assume that, you know, it would be like if we had a dinner party at our home. Probably wasn't. Houses were not built, neither do they work like houses we're familiar with today. There would have been a smallish table set in this courtyard, and around this table, there would have been these elevated couches. Think of really big ottomans. Okay, so in your mind's eye, can you see this? There's a courtyard, probably in the evening. There's a small table set in which food will be placed. And around this table are these kind of low couches. Now, these low couches would accommodate three or four adults who would approach the table and stretch out, normally laying on their sides, on these couches. Now, where did this silly tradition come from? Well, historically, we know it came from the Greeks. That's what the Greeks liked to do. That was fashionable. When the Romans conquered the Greeks, they picked up the tradition or the habit. And in this case, we have at least one Jewish rabbi who has also picked up this custom. And so when the text talks of reclining at table, you have to picture this table with probably three couches around it because one, one space would be left open for the people who are coming up to replenish the food on the table. And on these couches, you would have individuals whose heads were toward the table and whose feet were possibly hanging off the edge of the couch, but away from the table. You have the picture in your head? Does it seem a little strange? Uh, maybe not. Some of you may <laughs> take your meals laying out on a couch uh, watching TV. I don't know. But from what I've read and some of the historical accounts, um, this was not a particularly comfortable way of eating. So when the guest arrived in a home during this period, it was expected that you would provide water for them to wash their feet. Now, that sounds funny to us. If we went to somebody's house and they offered us something to wash our feet with, we would be disturbed 
we would wonder, do my feet stink? You know, what's going on here? This is strange. But at that time, generally travel was by foot with open shoes, sandals, and the roads were dusty. And so to walk somewhere, which was the only way most people got anywhere, was to trod through dirt and dust. And when you arrived at your destination, some of the road came in with you. And so it was a common courtesy to provide water so the guests could wash the dust of travel off their feet. In many households that had servants, it was the duty of the lowest of the servants to wash the feet of the guests. So even beyond the courtesy of offering water to wash one's feet, in some households, there, was, there were lowly slaves that were relegated to the task of washing the feet of other people. That should probably provoke some thought for us. It was also customary and typical for the male guest, or the male host, rather, uh, to greet male guests with a kiss on the cheek. Um, again, that's a little foreign to us today, even though we are aware that in some cultures, um, particularly, we would be mindful of uh, Middle Eastern cultures where we still see that happening. Uh, when men encounter one another, um, there's often uh, a kiss on the cheek. That was certainly the case uh, at this time where that was normal and expected. It would be uh, like today, us extending a handshake to an arriving guest, or if that guest today is very close and dear to us, we might uh, give them a hug instead of a handshake. To do neither uh, would be something, even in today's world, that we would be very likely to notice and ponder. Why was an appropriate greeting absent when I showed up? Finally, a little dab of perfumed oil, often olive oil, um, would have been offered as an anointing for the head of an arriving guest. Perfumes were relatively expensive back then, and some were extremely expensive. Late in uh, Jesus' life, there are two other stories similar to this one, but not the same story, where a very expensive fragrance uh, ointment called nard was provided and applied not to his feet as we'll see in the story today but to his head um, this little detail suggests that the perfume that we encounter in the story because it was in an alabaster jar was probably of quality and thus likely costly Another preface to the text that's good for us to get in our heads is that there was a perspective back then that spiritual uncleanliness often happened by what was touched or consumed. In other words, 
it was an external thing that came and contaminated one. So we've already seen responses to the fact that Jesus uh, touched sinners. Uh, he touched unclean people. That was perplexing to people in that culture. Uh, for a religious person to touch an untouchable uh, was troubling and offensive. And it was thought that spiritual contamination could and would result from touching a sinner. So people back then tended to see uncleanliness as caused by encounters with external things like sinners or eating the wrong foods, touching something that was dead or ceremonially unclean, etc. It appears that they did not primarily have a sense that uncleanliness came from within a person. But we know in Scripture that the opposite is true. But to this preface, to this background, we also need to remember that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to save sinners. So, I've entitled my message today, Wisdom's Child. And this title is taken from Luke 7.35, which is really not part of today's passage. But I think that it is relevant to what we will see today. And, the, and uh, Luke 7.35 says, Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Now this is a concluding remark to the text that James took us to. But the verse both punctuates the preceding text and I think it sets up the story we'll consider today. The passage we'll be studying today is Luke 36 through 50, but verse 35 provides a scriptural lens with which we can consider today's text. As we do, I challenge you to decide who wisdom's child is in the story that we'll be reading. So let's take a look. I'll be reading from the NASB. Luke 7, beginning in verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him, Jesus, to dine with him. And he, Jesus, entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a certain woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she kept on weeping, wiping them with the hair, with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, "If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is." 
who is touching him and that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon replied, say it, teacher. And Jesus said, a moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So Simon, which of them will love him more? Now Simon answered, and he said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. Then Jesus turned to the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he says to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So, my main point today is that the more we feel we do not need to be forgiven, the more self-righteous we become. Let me repeat that. The more we feel we do not need to be forgiven, the more self-righteous we become. And the more self-righteous we become, the less we love. So let's examine this, what the story reveals of Simon's heart. He understood that sin exists. Okay? The problem was that he saw sin as something that was to be evaluated on a horizontal comparative basis. He failed to evaluate sin in comparison to total sinlessness, that is, to the sinless holiness of God. Simon had a faulty view of sin that allowed him to view his sin favorably. Simon's disdain for the woman was predicated on a relativistic view of sin, Simon may have been the kind of person who was wise enough to not claim to be 
perfect, but his heart revealed that he saw himself as good as perfect compared to the immoral woman. Because of this unbiblical perspective on sin, he placed very little, perhaps no value, on God's forgiveness of sinners. Mercy and grace may have been concepts that he gave mental assent to, but they were not important to him because he did not think he was in need of them. Simon was self-righteous. His self-righteousness led him to wrong conclusions about the woman and wrong conclusions about Jesus. His harsh view of the sinful woman led him to wrong judgment about the man she was touching. He concluded that if Jesus was the real deal, someone for whom Simon would show respect, he would have known what manner of woman this was that was touching him, and he would have made it stop. He would have recoiled from this unclean woman. If Jesus was really a prophet, he would have known that this sinner was contaminating him by touching him. Simon's heart had no room for God's grace. That God would or even could show grace to an immoral woman like her did not fit his religion. That he would need God's grace too was inconceivable as he was not in need of it. Simon was confident that God was the party who ought to be grateful to have a righteous man like him around. Not that he should be broken and shedding tears of gratitude that God would or had forgiven his sins. But Jesus knew Simon's heart. He knew Simon's dangerous deceptive, deadly conceit. So he told Simon a parable. A parable of two men who were in debt to a moneylender and they were not capable of repaying the debt. My second point. There's a connection between correctly understanding our helplessness and loving our rescuer. So the parable, in the parable, one of these men owed the equivalent of 50 days' wages. So the parable says denarii, and the standard for uh, valuation of a denarii back then was it was approximately equivalent, equivalent to a normal day's wages. You work all day, you get a denarii. The other man's debt was equivalent to 500 days of his labor. To put this in perspective, let me pose a question to you. Think about your normal paycheck. Think about what that paycheck must accomplish for you. It may be a little different for some of us, but for most, there are at least some essentials that the paycheck has to provide food, shelter, clothing. For most, 
we could probably add things like insurance and fuel and cell phones and taxes and whatnot. Uh, for some, you can add luxuries. Dining out, entertainment, the internet, vacations, hobbies, the list goes on and on. Now ask yourself, in your situation, given your income, what percentage of your paycheck can you allocate strictly to paying debts? 50% of it? Whatever hits your bank account, could you turn half of that around and pay debts? Probably not for most of us. 35%? How high? 15%? Maybe 5%. Five dollars out of every hundred goes to this. Okay, so maybe that's comfortable, five percent. How long would it take you if you had to work 20 days to pay off one day of debt for the man with the 50 denarii of debt? You can do the math. For the man with 500 denarii, you can also do the math, and you can see that these guys had a very heavy burden of debt pressing on their lives. Now, Jesus knew something about Pharisees. Now, there are other passages in which it's stated very clearly that they were lovers of money. So Jesus used something that was near and dear to Simon's heart, and that was money and debt. Simon could relate to those. It's unfortunate that Simon, as a religious leader, wasn't relating to the concepts of sin and forgiveness. But Jesus met him where he was, and he talked about the debted, indebtedness of these people and what their likely response would have been to having those debts graciously, inexplicably, without them having to do anything, forgiven. So when Jesus said, which of these debtors is most likely to have the greater love for the money lender who forgave them, Simon answered correctly. But the text suggests that he apparently had very little comprehension of what he was answering. Jesus then turned to the woman and pointed out that the courtesies Simon withheld from him, she had abundantly supplied. The woman that Simon had contempt for put Simon to shame. You, Simon, gave no water for my dirty feet. She wet my feet with her tears. You, Simon, gave no courteous kiss of greeting. She has not stopped humbly kissing my feet. You, Simon, offered no oil for my head. She anointed my feet with perfume. Jesus put Simon's lack of love 
on display. Simon withheld even the common courtesies from Jesus because he was judging Jesus. His actions reveal that his judgments were not loving. They show Simon's disdain, perhaps even contempt for Jesus. What made the difference between Simon and the woman? Jesus tells us her love flowed from the forgiveness she had been given. And her actions, her response, was driven by her love. Yes, she was a sinner. Jesus acknowledged that. Her sins were as a debt that she could not repay. She could not undo her sinful past. She could never atone for her own sins. Her sins defined her. She was an immoral woman. They were a constant, unyielding, crushing weight on her. There was no hope, no remedy, no way out of her predicament. Yet she had somehow heard about this Jesus who was a friend of sinners. This Jesus who healed people afflicted with disease and with demons. Jesus who raised the dead. Jesus who forgave sinners of their sins. Instead of running away from those who had scorned for her as an immoral person, she ran to the one who offered mercy, love, and forgiveness. The word about Jesus had reached her, and God had opened her ears. God had given her ears to hear. And in faith, she ran to the one who offered hope. In Jesus, she found what seemed impossible. She found tenderness instead of harshness. She found love instead of rejection. She found cleansing instead of condemnation. And she found peace instead of the stress and strife of a sinful life. She understood what Jesus had done for her, and it produced a response of overwhelming gratitude and love. Her love flowed from being relieved from the crushing weight of sin that she no longer bore to the one who removed that weight from her. Jesus turned to her, not to Simon, and said, your sins have been forgiven. Point three, Jesus is not defined by us. Realization descended on those reclining around the table at Jesus' words. They understood that he had declared this immoral, immoral, sinful, dirty woman to be sinless. Jesus had redefined her from sinful to sinless, from unclean to clean. And their question was, who is this man who even forgives sins? They had asked the most important question of their lives. They had asked, who is this man? Who is this Jesus? The text does not tell us who these people were. We do not know what their motive was in attending Simon's dinner. But their response gives us a hint that they were sizing Jesus up trying to figure out what label to put on him. 
Simon was trying to figure it out, out if he was a prophet. He'd already conceded that he was maybe a teacher. Maybe there were even some there that evening who were seriously wondering if it was possible that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. We just don't know. Text doesn't tell us. But of all the people that evening who were busy trying to evaluate and label Jesus, there was only one person in the story who understood. Everyone else was trying to figure out what box they could put him in. But Jesus not, does not yield to our definitions, our conditions, our limitations, our expectations, our demands, or our desires. He does not allow us to put him in a box. He's God. It is not he who must yield to our will, but we must yield to him. We do not define Jesus. It's Jesus who defines us. As the dinner guests became agitated and perplexed by the idea that Jesus audaciously pronounced forgiveness of sins, for this woman, Jesus does an astonishing thing. He turns to the woman and says, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So we reminded ourselves earlier why Luke wrote the gospel. He wants us to know the truth about the things which Jesus did. And in hearing about Jesus, that we would come to know him. That is Luke's intent in these verses about this one evening in Jesus' life. This dinner in an unnamed city at the home of a skeptical, perhaps scornful Pharisee named Simon. In one unexpected act of love toward an unlovable sinner, Jesus dispels the desperate darkness, the deadly self-righteousness, and gives us an irrefutable picture of the good news of the gospel. So, does this story shift any of the bricks in your belief wall? Can you identify with this story? Are you secure in your self-righteousness like Simon? Are you like the others at the table asking, who is this man who forgives sins? Are you skeptical and perhaps dismissive of Jesus? Do you see yourself as a hopeless sinner who is moving day by day ever closer to God's judgment and wrath Heart from real, enduring forgiveness for your sins. Maybe you're like the woman. You have run to Jesus and have experienced forgiveness. You have placed your trust in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John proclaims in the Gospel of John. I hope that is you. I hope that's who you are this morning. But does your love for him continue to grow? Does it steadily increase as your awareness of your own 
flesh-driven sinfulness increases? Is your desire for Jesus immensely greater today than when you first believed? Or does it look more like a once-and-done relationship? Do you have occasions where maybe while you're praying or in your study of God's word, where tears of gratitude begin to flow? Are there times when you feel like Isaiah when he stood in the presence of God and declared, woe is me for I'm undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Are you overwhelmed in the presence of God? Is the deepest longing of your heart to be where Jesus is? And like this woman, are you, be, are you willing to be humiliated in public by expressions of your passion and love for Jesus? While the story that Luke recorded happened 2,000 years ago, the truths of the story have not changed. Jesus is still in the business of forgiving sins to those who, by faith, Turn to him for forgiveness. Even today, Jesus offers peace to those for whom separation from God has left them with little peace. The same Jesus that saw through Simon's self-righteousness and gently revealed his condition still speaks to those who are deceived by the false teachings of this world. Come to Jesus and be forgiven. Wherever it is that you see yourself in this story, you cannot be unresponsive in light of it. If you're depending on your own righteousness to save you from an eternity of misery, of abandonment, and uh, abandon that deadly false hope today, turn to Jesus, the one who can and will forgive your sins, the one who will give you peace. If you or one who has trusted in Jesus, don't allow your love for him to grow cold. You still sin. Perhaps you even sinned this morning as you prepared to come to church. There are a lot of temptations on Sunday mornings to sin, especially if you've got small children. Even if your faith is in Christ alone, even if you have experienced his loving forgiveness in the past, you still need to turn to him for, your sin, for the sins of today and the sins of tomorrow and receive his mercy that is renewed and fresh every day. Confess your sins and he is ever faithful to forgive you your sins. And when he does, as he will, be overwhelmed, humbled, and amazed that he remains faithful to you and loves you with an unquenchable love. Let his love for you fan the flames of your love for him.
So I included verse 35 in this passage. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. I hope you spotted the person in the story who is the child of wisdom. Wisdom's voice speaks from God's word today and says, turn to Jesus, find forgiveness in him, and as you do, he will remind you, your faith has saved you. Go in peace.